welcome to uh, the first uh, episode of the Fall 2017 Fellows Series, uh, where we interview all of the GU Politics Fellows and talk to them about our GPPR theme this year, which is uncertainty. Uh, we have a lot of uncertainty in politics, a lot of uncertainty in business. Uh, we want to get a lot of their uh, insights and opinions uh, as we look to move forward. I'm Disraeli Smith, our senior interview editor. And I'm Peter Newman, uh, first year MPP student. Uh, and, and so uh, today we're uh, interviewing Patrick Murphy, and I'll let Peter uh, give a little bit of insight and details about who Patrick is. So Patrick Murphy, uh, we're really excited to interview uh, because he served as a U.S. congressman from Florida uh, for four years and had one of the toughest uh, house races in U.S. history, most expensive house races in U.S. history in 2012. Um, and ended up going up against Marco Rubio, unfortunately losing in 20 in 2016. So he he dealt a lot a lot of uncertainty on the campaign trail, and as a member of the House Finance Committee. And we're excited to see what he has to say. All right, uh, this is Disraeli Smith. I'm here with Peter and Congressman Patrick Murphy, and welcome to a, another edition of the GPPR podcast. Uh, so we're just going to jump right in because I know your time is valuable. So first thing first, best school in the country, Miami or Georgetown? Oh, man, that's a tough question to start <laughs> off with. you got to warm me up. <laughs> uh, look, I love them both. Uh, I love the Canes. It was a great place to go. Uh, a lot of great friends there. But there's a great you know, institute here. It's a great, great school, uh, great history. It's just a different feel being on a school built in or started, what, 1789. I mean, it's just different from the U. I don't think Florida was a state then, not even close to it, right? It was a swamp then. So uh, a little something different about being on, on, on a school like this with the history and the alumni base. Uh, so two uh, great programs. I think Georgetown's got a pretty solid basketball team this year. Miami's coming along. Uh, my Canes are doing good in football this year, so yeah, proud about that. 6-0, 5-0, something yeah, like that. Something like that, yeah. Keep winning at the last second. Wins. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Fingers crossed they keep going. You beat, you know. you beat Florida State for the first time since. In seven years. Seven years, yeah, tell me about it. I'll tell you some good stories about going up there for football games. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So how's your Georgetown experience been thus far, and what do you look to get out of it over the next uh, several weeks while you're still here? Uh, I've loved it. I, I told everyone back home, you know, I've, I've uh, after my four years in public service running for, you know, a tough Senate race that I've become uh, just frustrated, somewhat pessimistic, almost disillusioned about politics and uh, obviously being a Democrat, I'm pretty upset about the current administration and some of the policies coming out there and very frustrated. And I, I kind of catch myself once in a while complaining and just negative about it. My first class here, uh, meeting with the, with the students, having the discussion group and, and having that, that conversation, I was, it might sound cheesy, but I was like immediately sort of like reinvigorated about um, politics, about the future of America, about our democracy, that there are people that care, that do care about policy, that do want to get things done. And I'm sure it's been said you know, a million times, but it's that next generation that's probably going to save and, and you know, take care of a lot of things that are going wrong right now. And a lot of the issues that uh, I think are, are affecting so many Americans, affecting so many people around the world, uh, are going to be better understood by a younger generation. Uh, and those future leaders, um, in many ways, could be coming out of this institute right here, right? Could be coming out of this university. And it's pretty cool to be around that, uh, to, to, to hear those stories, to hear the um, ideas uh, for problem solving, but also where people want to go to work, you know, and, and what they want to do to change the world. So that, to me, is pretty exciting. 
So hopefully continue to meet, uh, you know, those those people around campus and, and got some cool guests, you know, to come in. We got Stanny Hoyer next week. Tonight, got a town hall with David Jolly. Uh, just a little while ago today, we had a great discussion about the intelligence community. Uh, I was on the Intel committee, so we had to talk a little bit about that. And I think we've done some pretty cool things and I think we still have some fun ones to go about the, the gig economy, the future of jobs, automation, machine learning. You know, where the heck are we going to be in 15 years from now? That sounds like a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, you know? a lot and, of uncertainty. And that's perfect yeah. because yeah. that is, you know, GPPR's policy theme this mm -hmm. year. Uh, we're focused on on uncertainty, obviously a reflection of the political climate, the business climate. Uh, and you talked a little bit about your town hall with uh, David Jolly, and mm -hmm. that's a lot about gridlock mm -hmm. uh, in Washington and the, you know, seemingly disconnect and polarization uh, of our political system. You know, what do you think some things that can be implemented to actually strip away some of that? To take it back to more of a collaborative environment instead of a, you know, opposite size, I'm going to vote for this regardless. So I always point to uh, seven things that I believe are structural problems that have led to the gridlock in our country. Probably bore everyone here with this, but, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the truth is that members of Congress aren't all dumb. They're not all lazy. Uh, they're not all just egotistical, selfish members. Most of them are pretty good people, right? On both sides, yeah, they really do care. They fight like crazy to get here. But there are structural problems that are ripping this country apart, that are ripping members of Congress apart, that do not allow them to work together. And I take it a step further. In fact, they are incentivized to play to their political bases and not to get something done. That often hurts you. Um, it is a lot easier to vote no on something and say, nope, I had no responsibility. That wasn't me. That was the other people. Than it is to say yes and put your neck out there on the line. Uh, you start off number one with gerrymandering. Uh, which to me is arguably the single biggest problem we have for the polarization in our country. Uh, about rough numbers here, about 90% of congressional districts are predetermined. And whether they're Republican or they're Democratic, and in those cases, the only election that matters, of course, is the primary. Right? And in order to win a primary, uh, you have to appeal to a very small group of people. In fact, it's about 15% of a congressional district shows up to vote in a primary. So, in other words, 15% of our country is determining 90% of our members of Congress. As a member of Congress or a candidate, you know who those 15% are. You can pander to them, and that's what most members do. Number two is the money. Out of control. Uh, and it's not just the, the, the amount of money and the super PACs and the undisclosed money. Uh, what's happening now looks like foreign money coming in. Uh, it's the amount of time spent by members of Congress, um, upwards 15, 20, 30, 40 hours a week, raising money, right? Like, like telemarketers on the phone all day, every day, begging for money. Um, whatever your policy is on money, you, sh you should want your member of Congress to be focused on the issues and problem solving, not in some damn call room begging for money. Uh, that's a problem. Uh, and then, of course, the, you know, say the corruption factor, but the piece that weighs into people's decisions, perhaps, on how they vote. It's the, the worst of it all. Uh, number three would be the media, right? More and more... Um, more and more people, I, th I think, and more and more media institutes or, or outlets are going toward a certain base, whether it's MSNBC or whether it's Fox and TV. Uh, the, the websites we go to, the apps we, we, we you know, are, are associated with are, are becoming more rigid in their views and, and continuing to tell us the same information. Uh, that makes all of us rigid, the voters and the elected officials. Uh, then you got things like cameras and committee rooms where uh, that on the surface, I thought was really good. Yeah, I want to see what my member of Congress is doing. And I want transparency. You bet. But what happens is then members of Congress know they're on camera. 
And the real discussion goes behind closed doors where there's no camera. So what you're seeing is kind of a show because the real discussion is behind closed doors. Uh, the lack of relationships, right? Members of Congress used to move to D.C., their families, their kids, they were, you know, God, it didn't matter, you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat, we're friends, right? We got to play golf this weekend, go, you know, have dinner. Nowadays, they don't know each other. They're here for the least amount of time possible. That leads to a breakdown. Uh, then you got the the lack of regular order, right? There used to be a real process on how things worked and, and, and the way a bill went through the Congress and got debated, how amendments were put on. All that's pretty much out the door now. Uh, then you got, um, you know, earmarks, which again, everyone says, oh, they're, they're really bad and you got to get rid of those bad earmarks. Um, and intent of that was good, but what's happened is um, it's taken away the, the opportunity that a lot of uh, members had to, to basically negotiate and what leadership had to get things done. Now they got no leverage over their whole committee. So you've seen this sort of free-for-all. So it's a long uh, intro to the answer to your question about how do you solve it. Uh, gerrymander, we've got a Supreme Court case right now, right, from Wisconsin. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Regardless of what happens there, I hope more states uh, start with some ballot initiatives. Uh, both parties are guilty of gerrymandering, right? But I hope states go toward a, a uh, more fair process, whether that's an independent panel that draws the districts and or a uh, maybe a computer that draws it where electoral composition, Republican Democratic makeup matters, where independents can vote, right? We're seeing a huge growth in independent state like states like Florida. About one third of the voters can't even vote. I mean, that's crazy, right? Um, and and you know, a lot of people are talking about the, the the California system, that top two system, that inherently forces people more to the middle. That's a ballot initiative. You know, whoever's listening right now wants to go to their home state and start getting signatures, go for it. Right? Get it on the ballot. People are talking about it. They're mad about it. It's happened in other states, so it's not like crazy to think that it could happen in more states. Yeah. Right? So that's a real solution. The money, right? Got to return Citizens United. Uh, Got to you know start electing members of Congress that that agree with that, that want to get the money out. Mm -hmm. um, the media, that's a tougher one, right? Uh, that, that's that's one that really gets to education. How do you educate more people to know what's fake news versus not? How do you get them to go a step further, not just you know, go to Fox News, but then go to another website or go to another, you know, TV station and kind of push those boundaries. Uh, really tough thing to do. Um, the other ones are, you know, get a little more into detail about the Congress, the way it works. But you start with those big three there. And I think you'll start to see, like, if you take the money needs out, members of Congress are going to be in D.C. more automatically. It's going to go do fundraisers. Um, you, you take away some of the, the urge to get reelected every two years in the constant campaign. Members of Congress are going to be here. They're going to know each other. They're the prompt. Then all of a sudden they know each other. They're going to have regular order. They're going to have a budget. Uh, they're going to start to get things done. So the other ones start to solve themselves when you fix those first few. Given all this uh, this dysfunction that you're talking about, mm -hmm. this political polarization, uh, and this uncertainty whether government is is really functional, is capable of finding and solving solutions in, mm -hmm. in American um, in public. Um, I'm wondering what advice you have for young people who want to get involved um, that, you know, want to affect change, but not, you know, dramatic institutional level type changes, um, getting involved and, and and succeeding without these these major institutional changes. Yeah. Um, 
no matter what, I mean, the reason I got into public service in the first place, because I was tired of complaining. And the mm -hmm. only way uh, you fix it is by getting involved, right? Whether that's simply voting, <laughs> uh, whether that's getting your friends and family to vote, right? Yeah. That's a really good start. Right. Um, running for office, that could be local office, state, federal, doesn't matter. The more people that do it, the more they're going to understand what candidates are going through, the more they're going to be more apt to get involved and stay involved in, in the electoral process. Uh, you learn a lot about yourself doing it, too. There's, I, don't, I don't think there's many downsides of running for office. Um, so I would always recommend people want to do it. But even if they don't want to be the, the person out front, then get involved on a campaign, right? Volunteering on the weekend. Republican, Democrat, doesn't independent, doesn't matter. Get out there and knock on some doors and, and make some phone calls and help with that democratic process uh, because it's going to take more involvement from, from more good people to, to change what we have now. Um, and, you know, become, you know, I would say uh, better educated on some of the issues and how to affect that change. There's certain groups that are already established. Uh, there's so many groups out there I never even heard of until I got elected to office uh, <laughs> that are really cool, right? They do a lot of really good things. Um, and with the Internet, you can become part of those so easily. Uh, signing little ballot initiatives and, and, and calling your member of Congress. Uh, those things matter, right? I mean, that those kind of things really do make a difference. Uh, I mean, I remember when I was in office, I would get a report every week and it'd tell me the, the kind of phone calls and emails and letters we got. And we got between like 800 and 1,200 a week, you know, points of contact. And I would see maybe there's 800 of 1,000 one week or on healthcare or on military spending or, you know, whatever it is. But then you know, hey, that that's... That's people care that's, about. That's something we right. And the next you know, people are gearing their conversation toward that and maybe voting on an issue related to that. So those letters and emails really do make a difference. So I'm interested in hearing what you have is experience as far as uncertainty on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had a really tough race, your first race in 2012, um, and you won by 2,500 votes. Mm -hmm. One of those, I think it was the second most expensive campaign mm -hmm. in history. Yeah. Um, how did you deal with uh, the uncertainty of having that close race, first of all, and secondly, you know, going head to head with Marco Rubio and a really tough, uh, really tough battle in 2016. How did you manage that um, that personal uncertainty as a candidate? The best analogy I can make to people uh, is it's like playing sports. Okay. And you know, so I you know grew up playing football, and when you're on the field, it's game time. You don't feel the hits. You know, you're just going, the adrenaline's going, and you got a mission, and you're like tunnel vision right on that play that's next. Right. And your family and your friends and supporters on the sideline see you get hit, and they're like, oh, man, that hurt. Or, oh, man, good hit, or whatever, cheer, and they're seeing it from a different perspective. And then as the candidate, you go watch the game film, right? You go watch that debate or that commercial I was running into kind of after the game. And then you start to, to sense it a little bit more. But as a candidate, you're so sort of entrenched, and you're in that moment. Um, everyone handles it differently, but yeah. I didn't let the, you say it's a tough race that, you know, the, those things that make that toughness up, I didn't let that affect me because right. you have to, at every event, act like it's your first event and you're just excited as you've ever been to, to be there. Mm -hmm. And every debate as if you've just slept 12 hours a night before <laughs> and you've been on a, on a beach relaxing and not yeah. slept two hours before, but you know, and everything you do that public face as a candidate you, you know, people say, oh, you're the president, you're the CEO, like of an organization. You're, I don't, in some ways you are, but you're really, you got to be the face of it, right? You have to be out front and, and can't let those things mess right. with you. And candidates that let that negativity 
and the uncertainty of a campaign get to them, it shows. And no one wants to vote for you know that sort of angry, mad person. You want someone makes you laugh and right. charismatic and happy and just the punches just roll off their shoulders. So uh, everyone handles it differently. Um, there's, there's no doubt. Uh, there were days I was very upset, and I'm sure there were interviews I did where I had a little edge. Um, but you try to learn from those and try to take a deep breath and, and look at the bigger picture and put yourself in, in the everyday voter shoes. Um, as it relates to that first race, I'll tell you real quick. I had no idea, you know, I had never been in public service, right? So I had no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs> so I was very naive and green uh, mm-hmm. with uh, de- with what was coming, the debates, the events, the speaking, the, all that. And had I known what I was getting myself into, I mean, who knows, <laughs> right? If I, uh, there's a certain amount of that naivete that maybe paid off and, and made me keep going and pushing and not letting obstacles bother me because I didn't even know the difference. It was, hey, I'm just going to wake up and work my hardest every single day and yeah. see where the chips fall. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So Peter and I are reading What It Takes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a book about, you know, the 1988 primaries and different candidates and the struggles they had. And I'm focused a lot about messaging and mm-hmm. the struggles that all of those guys running for president had coming up with messaging and, mm-hmm. you know, filtering and wiltering in the big lights. Mm-hmm. You know, how did you, you know, manage that? You know, how did you come up with a message that resonated with voters? How did you think of how you were going to be that primetime player, you know, under the lights, in the debates, in the forums, in the mm-hmm. town halls, you know, actually talking to people and being successful? So a couple things to that question. I, I think as it relates to the actual messaging and uh, policy, being able to combine that with, with who you are as a person, your personality, whatever that personality is whatever you consider yourself, be you, right? Like, don't try to be somebody else. Don't try to, like, get coaching and change. And that doesn't mean you can improve, but people want authenticity, I believe, more than anything. And whatever your style is, own it, right? And that's the same for for policy. You, you, you take what's important to you, right? You, you, you talk about it in a certain way, but don't ignore your polls. And if a poll is telling you that 90% of your district wants to hear about xyz issue then talk about that issue but do it in your own terms and hopefully you can connect that to something that's important to you and you know what i always found was uh, that saying to be very true that all politics is local and you go take an issue like um say climate change don't talk about climate change in, in in a republican district like mine Talk about the local, and if that's something you care about, like I do, then, then talk about the local issue in my district, like the toxic water we have, and maybe be able to go up the ladder yeah. for how mm-hmm. that could be getting worse because of climate change. If you're in, you know, the Keys right now, maybe you want to talk about, you know, the devastating hurricane we just had and how there, there's a lot of argument there's going to be more of these powerful storms, right? First time we've had a couple Category 5 slams, right? And, and you know, people go kind of up the ladder, but start with that local issue on whatever that issue is and then connect it to the bigger one. Tax reform, right? It's complex. What are you talking about? But talk about, uh, you know, the, the mechanic who uh, hasn't had a pay raise in 15 years and, and someone that you know, right? A story you know about a person who's going to be impacted one way or the other because of tax reform. You were U.S. representative for uh, four four years, mm-hmm. two terms. How did you deal with uncertainty, uh, finance services committee? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a frustrating committee because there are so many, uh, I think, common sense 
bills that could have been passed yeah. uh, and issues that could have been solved that didn't go anywhere because of partisan nonsense right. and egos from people at the top that want it to be their way and that's it. No if and or buts about it. And, uh, you know, I always took the, the mindset, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but better to focus on the issues that we agree on to make some progress, to get something done, and then to kind of grow that, some momentum and trust perhaps into some of the bigger, tougher issues to come out of the gates on... You know, when I was on the committee, it was a Republican House uh, and then a Democratic president. Mm -hmm. And to come out attempting to repeal Dodd-Frank as if President Obama was going to sign that is just like an absolute waste of everybody's time. Right? Right. Now, you want to talk about two, three things to fix, right, that President Obama's publicly talked about, that Barney Frank, the author, and, and, and Dodd have discussed that that didn't work out quite the way they wanted they're out there like it's very just public you know information like let's do those bills improve it and then you know kind of go from there that was was very frustrating to me because what happened is it, is it kind of lowers morale in the committee right and you got people sitting around saying what, what are we doing here like we are beating our head against the wall these you know folks on their side here are are cheering and you know high five and for something that's not going to go anywhere right um and it just wastes taxpayer money and time so just be realistic about you know what, yeah. what can actually get done um, in, in whatever environment you're in and, and start with those wins. So that sort of uncertainty was demoralizing and it led to really poor attendance on the committee and a lack of interest um, and people just not even putting bills forward. Um, there was a bill we had, a, a flood insurance uh, reform, which would have been passed in light of what just happened. but. You know, it was a Republican, Democratic, you know, co-sponsors, and we had some great momentum with it. And, you know, they, they didn't want it to go anywhere uh, because of partisan reasons. They didn't want to give me a win mm-hmm. in a uh, client where I was running for the U.S. Senate against Marco Rubio. God forbid I had a win, so they're not going to bring that up. That sort of partisan nonsense right. um, is very discouraging. But it sounds like you have this optimistic undertone to everything you're saying. And I wonder, are you yeah. going to try for the Senate again? Yeah, you know, look, I haven't ruled out public service uh, forever. I don't see myself doing it right now. I enjoy public service. Um, I enjoy so many of the, the, the days where you feel like you're making a difference, mm-hmm. right? Whether that's constituent service back home, helping one individual person, or whether that's being involved in legislation to affect millions. Uh, maybe it's foreign policy related that uh, you don't even get to talk about, right? Yeah. Something I did on the Intel Committee, perhaps. But those are the cool things where you get to kind of pinch yourself and say, wow, you, you know, this is neat. I, I helped people out, made a difference in the world. And uh, that's the part I miss. But there's a lot of nonsense along the way. Right? <laughs> uh, there's another word I could use for that probably uh, with that fundraising and, and sort of the just the hours. I mean, I did 80 right. to 100 hours a week for, you know, probably six years. It's grueling. Uh, members of Congress that do it with a spouse and kids, I have a tremendous amount of respect for. Yeah. Uh, very tough for a family. It's a whole sacrifice. It's not the person right. running. It's their whole family. Right. Uh, I was single you know, at the time. Didn't have a wife, kids, anything. So it was easier for me. Uh, I live on the East Coast, two-hour flight. People yeah. in California, time change, long <laughs> flight, change yeah. of plan. You know what I mean? Like All those little things matter and make a difference. Uh, so it, it can be a, a very tough, grueling job, but very rewarding. So... Hopefully, I'm in a position, um, you know, I want to stay active in the community and, and mm-hmm. uh, hopefully I have an opportunity to, to run again and make a difference. I know we're a little short on time, so let me just wrap up with this. 
you know, it, you we've talked a lot about, you know, uncertainty. We've talked about your optimism. We've mm -hmm. talked about your frustrations. Yeah. You know, we've talked about a lot of different things. You know, and many of our listeners, they're public policy students. Mm -hmm. You know, they're people who are going to be interested in doing policy one day, whether it's service or something else. You know, what's the one thing you want to tell them? The one thing you wish someone would jump back in time and say, hey, Patrick, you should know this. <laughs> uh, that government isn't a waste of time. That There's a lot more, you know, good than bad. And there's a lot of fulfilling days uh, in it. Yes, it's frustrating because as, as Americans with technology, we are seeing more uh, of the of the negative and nasty side of them we ever have in history, right? Just by virtue of our access, we see it so up close and personal. And it's not even the 24-hour news cycle, it's the 24-minute news cycle. I mean, things are changing constantly. So don't be discouraged by that. You know, our, our government was set up in many ways to be dysfunctional and very deliberative and intentional if things pass and for not to move very quickly. So keep that in mind, despite the frustrations we have, that you got to take the long view uh, with our country and that we do need good people to be involved and not be discouraged. And that selfless mentality uh, of being an American, of, of helping and serving your country in any form uh, really can make a difference and we need it more now than ever. Perfect. Well, we just want to thank you, sir, for yeah. sitting for thank another you. edition of the GPPR podcast. We thank, really thank, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GPPR podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website at www.gppreview.com, our Twitter at GP Policy Review, or our Facebook, GPP Review. Thank you. <laughs>